0: Our great monument to George Washington doesn't even involve a statue. I mean, it's this obelisk in the middle of uh, Washington, D.C. It's 200 feet tall, but it's inhuman. And that's what we've allowed him to become in in our culture. And I think that's, that's a sad thing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And today we have part two of my chat about George Washington uh, with David Stewart, the historian. And with all the horrors of Ukraine at the moment, I hope you can join me in looking back to a time where there were leaders who did not take advantage of their countries. And in George Washington, that was certainly one. And we talk about him as the man and we talk about his relationship with John Adams and the influence of Hamilton and Jefferson on Washington's administration. And we talk about him and how he separated his military and political roles in doing so, set a precedent that stands today. So I do hope you enjoy that. Elsewhere, on our website, we've got a great piece uh, coming up for International Women's Day. All about this quite amusing uh, woman called Mary Frith, who sounds like an absolute character of the uh, Stuart period. In 1611, she was arrested for unwomanly acts, which involved drinking, smoking, swearing... And Wearing Men's Clothes. So that's an amusing piece in time for uh, International Women's Day, which is on Tuesday the 8th of March, and features Holly Kite, uh, is the author of that. Elsewhere, as I have mentioned before, and I'm going to keep on doing it, we do have our unpublished novel competition. Details on the homepage. Have a look if you know anyone who's written a historical novel get them to apply to win the competition. The prize is £500, and the novel gets published. So with all this ghastliness of Ukraine, uh, we do have a chat next week, which was going to coincide, well, it still is going to coincide with the Ides of March, but I'm going to be speaking to Peter Stoffard, the author of The Last Assassin, which deals with the assassination of Julius Caesar, who was a dictator, felt invincible and secure, and was about to embark on an invasion of a foreign land. And so there are echoes some echoes of what's uh happening at the moment but i want to speak to him and, and talk about if there are anything that uh, resonates today with the assassination of julius caesar and he's certainly a man who will know about it not only has he's written this book he was editor of the times uh, for 10 years and worked at, as a journalist in downing street when tony blair was prime minister so it's going to be an interesting chat, all sorts of uh, stuff that he will know that will help, I think, in our understanding of of events today. So without further ado, though, I will take us back to the War of Independence, George Washington, with me and David Stewart. And as ever, you can get me on the Twitter at OliWCEQ. I hope you enjoy the show. The main thrust of the book is this sort of political, um, his political learning. So uh, he he cuts his teeth in the, the Burgesses, does, as a Burgess in in the uh, 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 in Virginia, um, which is, I guess, would that have been the equivalent of a state senator nowadays? Uh,
0: exactly. Uh, and uh, it was uh, the highest political office uh, you could be elected to, there was a governor's council, which was operated a bit like a Senate, uh, but you had to be appointed to, and he was frankly never rich enough to get that appointment. Um, And uh, he served 16 years in the legislature. And I like to point out that he was a legislator five years longer than he was a soldier. Um, So he really was in important ways, a, a political animal and he, goes into the Burgesses after his military career really has cratered. And it, it's a, it's a turn. He has decided he's not going to become a military person. That's not as going to be his career. The British army does not want him, um, not because near as we can tell, not because of his missteps, because frankly, they were British missteps as well. Um, but, because he's a, he's a Virginian, he's a colonial, he's not worthy to serve the crown in, in, in uniform.
1: That that was a general approach really. It wasn't really targeted at Washington, was it? it oh, was exactly.
0: Virginian it, wouldn't it, have... they, they didn't want any colonists. Um, so uh, he had to do something else. Uh, and he decided he would, uh, he had, sort of lucked into Mount Vernon by then. His brother had died, his brother's widow had died, his brother's daughter had died. So he was number four on the list and he got the property and he would become a a political force. That was his goal. And he arrives at the House of Burgesses in uh, 1759 um, miserably prepared for it. He uh, is a poor public speaker. As I've said several times, he doesn't feel uh, comfortable with his education. Uh, he, he hates debate. He feels like he's lead-footed and slow, um, which may well have been true. Um, so he's got to find a different way to succeed. You know, the American environment, which is part of the British tradition, was, you know, a, a political leader needs to be a great orator and needs to engage in debate in a slashing and powerful style. Well, Washington can't do that. So he's got to figure out other ways to advance. And, and that's his great challenge after the uh, seven years war.
1: There's a there's a great story um, where he's uh, in the burgesses where he's trying to get some legislation passed to stop pigs um, sort of basically crapping everywhere. And uh, he doesn't manage to get it through, does he? He has to rely on a a colleague to to sort of oil the oil the wheels.
0: Yeah, it's a slightly mysterious sequence because this is pretty non-controversial legislation that has been adopted in a number of places. And uh, it seems
1: like a slam dunk, doesn't
0: it? Yeah. mean, who's against it? You know, the pigs don't actually vote. Um, (laughs) So. But but it fails, and then it comes back very quickly and clearly in my mind washington has recruited um, edmund pendleton who was the smartest lawyer in uh, the house of burgesses at the time to carry the bill uh pendleton reinvents the bill uh he calls it uh, a bill to preserve the water quality it's an environmental bill now uh because of course when the pigs do what they do um the it uh it, it makes the wells not uh, the wells and the drinking water noxious, uh, and it sails through. And Washington doesn't say a word through the second life of this legislation. And my sense is he's just sitting there learning, and he's watching Pendleton and seeing how he deals with his colleagues, how he revives the bill, how he maneuvers to get it through, how yet he uses his, a sense of timing to bring it up at the right moment. You know, as a, when he becomes president, one of the stunning things about Washington is his sense of timing. You know, he he doesn't bring things to a boil or to a vote until he can win. Uh, And I think this is the sort of thing he learned by watching, by experiencing.
1: And and he's, he's not a, brash individual at this stage which well whatever really but um he he's uh, you see this in the continental congress as well where your descriptions you know he's he's sort of working the room by by through social occasions and 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 getting to know uh the other uh the other delegates and they're getting to know him but he must have done a brilliant job because he um uh, well he's appointed the the, the commander-in-chief isn't he
0: He does, and and he uses affability and courtesy and dignity and, you know, to establish a a persona. And he's, you know, he's a big guy and he's always dressed perfectly and he has charisma. When he walks into the room, everybody notices him. But then he he uses that as the platform and builds out from it. Uh, And he does demonstrate, uh, I think, one of the most important things he does is he demonstrates that he can get things done. You know, there's lots of smart folks in the world who just aren't terribly good at getting things done. And if you asked Washington to do something, it would be done quickly and tolerably well. And that's a real gift that people appreciated. You know, this is a man who spent a lifetime of 12 and 14 hour days. He he worked from sunup until after sundown and that establishes your credibility that you can be trusted uh, with responsibility and and that was a, a key thing for him and I just want to emphasize with commander-in-chief there were political forces that helped him in that election um, it wasn't just that he was brilliant politically um, brilliant personally mm. uh, he uh, the army that the, the all the fighting had been in Massachusetts, it was around Boston, the army was all New Englanders. So they wanted somebody from another part of the colonies to be commander in chief, just to show that they were united. Um, So he had that virtue of being from Virginia, which was the biggest colony. Um, The other thing is to be honest, um, we didn't have a very deep pool of military talent. Uh, So the, other candidates um, were, well, to call them unimpressive is, is, is flattering. Um, So Washington, even with his quite checkered military career in the French and Indian war, at least had some experience, um, which was considerably more, uh, well, the the two candidates who did have experience, uh, one was uh, chronically bizarre, and uh the other was basically english uh, <laughs> and you really can't rebel against uh england with an englishman at the head of your uh troops
1: would have been quite nice and, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well they
0: continued to serve although the, the one i described as bizarre may well have turned into a double agent at some point but and that was charles lee but it's uh it, it, Accusing someone other than Washington, I think pretty clearly was going to be
1: a mistake. As commander in chief, he dealt with a um, a, a sort of political machinations to unseat him quite um, deftly, didn't he? Um, Yeah, he he had a
0: a bad stretch of about hmm. a year and a half when he didn't win anything, Um, and you know that's never good for the general. politically. And then there's this smashing victory up at the Battle of Saratoga, um, where the American troops are led by Horatio Gates, who was an experienced uh, British soldier who had uh, moved to the colonies. Uh, And so there was a a move to uh, supplant uh, uh, Washington with Gates. And it was done subtly. uh, Gates had an ally who was a smart guy. Uh, He's disappeared in history mostly because he lost um, this particular struggle. Um, But he arranged sort of bureaucratically to set up an uh, an organ superior to Washington and then to get Gates as president of that. They called it the Board of War. And Washington could have taken them on directly. And I think the young Washington would have, you know, uh, been thundering uh, diatribes against them and uh, really uh, created quite a ruckus. But Washington keeps his powder dry. And he he basically says, you know, I don't take these guys seriously, they're going to mess this up. And ultimately, they do. Um, They sort of overreach themselves. Washington makes some key alliances with people in, our, in the Congress. And the, we had no actual government at this time. We had a Congress, which was essentially a debating society and a diplomatic body, uh, but the army answered to Congress. So Washington always respected them and he got support from them, which was essential. And the, the conspirators uh, just, just fritter away. It, it, it ran its course in about 90 days during a, win, a winter, and it was a winter of discontent, uh, a, a phrase that comes to mind. But uh, again, it's a, it, to me, it's a sign of Washington's maturity that he, he, he plays his cards carefully, um, he doesn't bluster around, um, he, he knows that he's got strengths, and he's got to essentially let these people blow themselves out.
1: And I guess the strengths that he learned in the French and Indian War with, um, you know, lightly armed but fast-moving troops was, was going to be much better than the British approach of marching steadily in line was going to be he successful.
0: Yeah. yeah, although, to be honest, the British learned that same lesson. Um, we shouldn't be too arrogant about this. Um, they, they walked into enough ambushes that they <laughs> that really wasn't. The way to go and so they had um light infantry uh during the revolutionary war and they had german un- units that also fought on um, the same way i think the jaegers uh you would describe that way so uh you, you know war in america was different uh it, it was not a bunch of open fields that you could um, have set these battles in uh, that occasionally happened but it was the uh exception not the rule
1: um now i was very interested in um uh, george washington's relationship with john adams because they seem to have got on quite well um early on at the first continental congress and but it's not a warm relationship is it um but what, what what was their relationship like
0: it's a great question and i'm not totally comfortable answering it because I'm not positive it is a relationship. They don't exchange direct letters that have survived, particularly other than business letters. Uh, and Adams latches onto Washington as at the Continental Congress as the best answer to the need for commander in chief, and he does endorse him and present him. So that's a key step. But it's not because he he's crazy about Washington. And, you know, Adams is this short, dumpy guy who's way too smart for his own good. And uh, Washington's this tall, you know, elegant fellow who, you know, Adams thinks is a little dim, uh, So they're not naturally uh, they don't have a natural affinity for each other. I think it got worse for Adams because when his wife finally meets uh, Washington, uh, Abigail Adams, who was brilliant letter writer, someone uh, who uh, who's uh, her impressions that she left are, are wonderful. Um, she thinks Washington is the bee's knees um, and she just carries on about what an impressive, marvelous man he is and that had to annoy the heck out of John Adams uh, to have his wife carrying on like that. Uh, And then when Washington is elected president, um, he gives a very diffident endorsement to Adams as a candidate for vice president. In fact, he gives it so late that nobody can actually read it in time for the voting. So, you know, by the end of his presidency, Washington knows Adams will be his successor politically and you know, he wants Adams to win because Washington does not want Jefferson to win that next election. That's the first real contested election. Uh, and so there is a little warmth between them then, but that's about it. And uh, Adams always had a bit of resentment that Washington got all the attention. Uh, and he has a famous quote about that, that you know that history would only notice Washington and Franklin and wouldn't notice terribly important people like him. Um, and it was a pretty good prediction. <laughs> and
1: now, in your in your introduction, you you mention, um, I think in in the in one of the final sentences that we shouldn't be asking whether we're Hamiltonian. Well, I say we Americans shouldn't be asking whether they're Hamiltonians, <laughs> Hamiltonians or Jeffersonians. They're Washingtonians. But is. Is that is that more because Washington finessed sort of Hamilton's um, uh, ideas behind where the government would go rather than Jefferson's slightly more um, disparate approach to the United States?
0: You know, the Hamilton versus Jefferson argument, which is one I've lived with way too long, um, is continues because you can argue both sides. Uh, Hamilton did, in fact, have a tremendous impact on the economy. Um, But then when Jefferson becomes president as our third president, he does change the political culture in a way and opens it up uh, to more uh, democratic common man forces. Uh, And they both leave a big imprint. But they are the contestants. And, you know, I end up falling back on this sometimes. They both worked for Washington. Mm. (laughs) And he was the guy whose vision of America as a continental nation, as a nation of significance, as a nation of stability, and, you know, we're not doing so well on that last part in the last couple of years, um, is the vision that actually, I think, has prevailed for most of our history. And, you know, what we expect from a president is what George Washington modeled, not Alexander Hamilton, not hustling off to the dueling ground, not Thomas Jefferson, you know, sitting alone in the White House and reading Voltaire. Um, we want a guy who's going to be out there and solve problems and act with integrity and, and dignity. Uh, you know, we don't often get that (laughs) but we that's the that's the model that's what we go what we aim for
1: and and i think his most laudable trait um is that he 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 does seem to have been even though he was he was full of himself he, he was he was modest enough to to know when it was time to finish he didn't he didn't outstay um, his welcome, but even when he became, he was appointed commander in chief, his words are very sort of, uh, well, you know, I might not win. I might be a bit unlucky. He, he always seems to have this, um, this kind of, uh, yeah, I guess, diffident, diffident approach to, to these huge jobs that he's got.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's important to him to set expectations low I was struck reading the records of the House of Burgesses, which I think pretty much nobody does. Uh, it's pretty obscure. But every time a new royal governor arrived from Britain, he would make a speech to the House of Burgesses and would say, basically, uh, I am not equal to the task I've been given. Um, I trust you will overlook my my errors because they will be errors of the head and not of the heart. I, I'm, condensing considerably, which is exactly what Washington says every time he gets a big job. And it struck me that I think that was sort of an 18th century uh, convention, and it was one he imbibed from those royal governors. And it's kind of refreshing uh, to hear it, and I think uh, he meant much of it. He was an endlessly ambitious fellow. He was capable of looking around the room and saying, well, why not me? You know, (laughs) I'm as good as they are. But I don't think he felt like he was better than the others. And I think he uh, understood that, you know, arrogance, a a showy uh, personality was not uh, comfortable for him, but also was not going to work for him. Uh, So, you know, he he was uh, a a low key individual in public. I mean, he he had a poor voice uh, and uh, was very careful in what he said. Uh, You you will find no uh, stirring speeches by Washington. Uh, He simply was careful
1: leaving, leaving, but leaving the presidency before he need, I mean, he, and that's a, um, that's a precedent that's set by him without him. He, we could have had, um, you know, presidents lasting a lot longer than eight years. Couldn't we?
0: Absolutely. You know, his two great retirements, first from the army at the end of the war and then from the presidency, uh, were terribly important precedents for us. Uh, the first established that, you know, military leaders would not just transition into uh, uh, civilian responsibility. That has happened occasionally with uh, generals running for office, but they have to get out of the army and and stand for election. And the second was that, you know, presidents need to go away um, and not hang on and die in office. And those were heartfelt in his case. I think both times he really wanted to go. I mean, he just you know, was tired of the jobs and was worn out and he liked Mount Vernon and he wanted to go home. But they also reflected his understanding that if he was indispensable, and the term we use for him sometimes, that wasn't good for the country, that there had to be more than just one guy. And uh, he acted on that uh, i think we were extraordinarily lucky as a nation to have this founding figure who understood that and acted on it uh and and set the precedents that uh, really have they have stood the st- uh, test of time
1: we're coming to the end of of our chat and i've really i've really have enjoyed um talking to you about uh, George Washington he's he's definitely viewed hugely positively ironically in this country despite the fact that he's responsible for uh, uh booting the british out and that because i cause I've, i keep keep on saying we throughout this conversation as if as if he's he's in any way you know uh, been a, a, a like a british leader but he does feel like um He's got a, a kind of something that anyone in any other country uh, would res- would respect and, and would be happy to have him as a, a prime minister or, or, or president. Unusually so, actually, when, when one thinks of political leaders.
0: Yeah, he, he had a gravitas and uh, accessibility. It's something I think we lose in this country. Um, is. His ability to connect with people and at an emotional level, which was key to his leadership, and um, it's it's encouraging to think that uh, in in Britain there's a more positive view of him. In this country, he's become a bit of a remote figure. Uh, part part of that is time, um, but part of it is uh, the persona he had. With, you know, his face has been such a totem in this country, and you know, it's on the dollar bill. It's it's ubiquitous, and it always looks like his teeth hurt, which in fact they did. Um, and that's not the fellow who led the country, and that's not the fellow who um, set so many of our important precedents.
1: And and do you think more recently? I know we've covered slavery, so we don't have to go into it. But do you think that's another reason why maybe he's not um, given as much nowadays of respect as he as he should have?
0: There is a a reflexive reaction to any of these slave owning leaders about that. But no, I I think we lost Washington well before that. He just became this this marble figure. I mean, our great monument to George Washington um, doesn't even involve a statue. I mean, it's this obelisk in the middle of uh, Washington, D.C. It's 200 feet tall, but it's inhuman. And that's what we've allowed him to become in, in, in our culture. And I think that's, that's a sad thing. And, and one, in my my small way, I'm trying to uh,
1: counteract. Well, I think you have. He, he does come across, um, you certainly get his humanity coming across, very much so. Um, and now you've written about um, uh, James Madison, Aaron Burr, you've written about the... Um, uh, the impeachments of presidents, which, you know, I mean, all these things I could talk to you for hours about, but, um, are you, are you planning on another nonfiction? I know you're writing novels and we're going to, um, uh, look, at, I think you've got a novel coming out in November, um, and one's just come out, but, but are you planning another nonfiction, um, book? I am. Um, it, it is not ready for prime time,
0: so I, I can't okay. uh, describe it, but, I, I am looking for a, a, a change. Uh, I, I feel like I've worked through this era uh, pretty hard, and I'd, I'd like to um, take on something else.
1: Oh, I was wondering if you were going to do something like John Adams, because um, I don't yeah, you know, I, fascinating I, character.
0: They are, but uh, you know, to work a couple of years or more, the Washington book took five years. Um,
1: yeah,
0: you've gotta really want to do it, and. Uh, i can i can tell i don't
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay well fair enough uh david thank you so much for coming on it's been really interesting um I'll, I'll um i'll put um links in the show notes for for the book it's coming out in paperback it's it's just coming in fact what i haven't mentioned is that it, two days ago was george washington's birthday
0: it's yeah, so 290
1: yeah <laughs> Which w- was celebrated, wasn't it, early on, in, in um, but not anymore, sadly.
0: Well, you folks are to blame for that. It was uh, the tradition to celebrate the king's birthday. So <clears throat> Washington was the closest thing we had. So uh, they made his birthday a national holiday. And <clears throat> it was right up through my childhood. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it was a day off and so was Lincoln's birthday, Uh And they fell very ten days apart in February. So um, in good years, he got two days off. Um, Then we fell prey to this hideous modern obsession with three day weekends. And so now we have President's Day, which is always uh, on a Monday. So we can have a three day weekend in February. And I refuse to celebrate Franklin Pierce or James Buchanan or Richard Nixon as presidents. So I (laughs) view it as Washington's birthday
1: fantastic fantastic (laughs) well thank you very much and um i'm sure we'd love to get you back on again to talk about some of the uh, especially impeachments i find that fascinating well thank you very much well i really did enjoy talking all about george washington with david stewart and i i think i probably went a little bit overboard at the end but i was in the middle of reading his his well coming to the end of reading his his brilliant book which i do recommend And it was just opening my eyes to to a man who I had, as we talked about right at the end there, is difficult to connect with as a human being, but I think David's book certainly manages to do that. And that's even taking into account what we discussed in part one. So next week, as I mentioned, we've got Peter Stothard on the assassination of Julius Caesar during the Ides of March, and... What I would love if you could give us a good review, if you could follow, subscribe, share with your friends and family. It's great doing these. You get an hour to talk with a fantastic historian. I get to read a book all about what they've been uh, writing about and it allows for a, an interesting chat. So if you've got any suggestions, you can get hold of me. I'm at Ollie WCQ on the Twitter. But I will leave you. Thank you and good night.